stand uh, humble uh, in awe of your hand that has worked and provided. And Father, we pray that we would learn to be dependent upon your spirit. Father, strengthen us. Call us to be your servants, Father, and, and have us to be the people you'd have us to be. Father, you're an awesome God, and, and we just want to serve you with all that we can. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. We just ask for your spirit to be here tonight to strengthen us so that we would be more like you. Uh, we just give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Going through the life of Solomon. Solomon was the king that took over for his father, David. David, we said, was the guy we studied on Sunday mornings for a long time. And uh, uh, David was a great, great king. And I guess it's it's pretty hard to follow in the footsteps of uh, uh, a, a, a giant and say that this mega man is now my father. I don't know, what was that? Uh, there was a line in Citizen Kane, that old black and white movie about Rosebud the Sled. And somehow or another, this kid was supposed to take over for his dad and his dad goes up to him and says I'm an awfully big man and when I put my foot down I leave an awfully big footprint and it takes a big shoe to fill my footprint son an intimidating line to like poor guys like yeah how do you fill in the shoes of your dad and I'm sure Solomon felt that 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 intimidation and yet we're we're watching Solomon and we're going to see that Solomon has a few of the seeds of his destruction planted inside of him from the beginning. And we can get to that, but he also was smart enough. We covered last week or whenever it was, we had communion or something in there. And uh, we, we start to see that Solomon did three things right. He listened to his father. His father gave him instructions, detailed instructions. And now we're going to see that he's going to start to implement those instructions. It's always important to listen and to learn from our elders and we discussed that we said that uh, solomon was smart enough to clean house his father gave him some uh, objectives to go in and says you got to get rid of this garbage here you got problems a b and c and you got to get rid of them and solomon took care of those problems he cleaned house he was listening and cleaning house and then we said that he was someone who was a seeker he asked for wisdom God re revealed himself to him in a, in a dream. Solomon's there and God comes up to Solomon and says, Solomon, you can have anything you want. What would it be? And he says, I don't know how to come in or come out like I should. I I'm supposed to be a king. I don't know how to do this king stuff. And that impressed God. And God says, man, I'm going to give you wisdom. Wisdom be on your years. Because you, you asked for it, I'm going to give it. And what you didn't ask for, you didn't ask for long life, you didn't ask for the life of your enemies, you didn't ask for money, you didn't ask for women, you didn't ask for any of those things, but God bless you, I'm going to throw it at you in buckets, everything else you ever imagined. And Solomon becomes this wise, wise king, has wisdom. He writes uh, the Proverbs for us, he's written some of the Psalms for us, it's going to tell us that he writes so many different things. And he studied and understood many different concepts of life. And uh, he's going to be a king that is going to speak to us a lot of things. So we're getting into his life and we're going to see that he's kind of furthering his education. He's going to do some wise things, if you would. So we're in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now King Solomon was king over all Israel. 
And these were his officials. It's going to go through Azra, the son of Zadok, was the priest. And it's going to list another guy, a whole bunch of other guys, a whole bunch of other guys. Verse 7, I don't need to impress you with how bad I can hack up the language. Verse 7, and Solomon had 12 deputies over all Israel who provided for the king and his household. Each man had to provide for a month in the year. So he he was rotating these men around and they would take one month out of the year and become the deputy. And these are the names of these guys. Da 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 da. It's got to go all the way down to uh, verse 14, verse 15, 19, and then basically we come to verse 20. So that saves you. We do our Bible read every night here, and and I'm telling you, you just go. Let's just skip it. We're killing ourselves. But verse 20. And here it is, it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. An important thought for us to understand. The promises of Abraham, this rings verbiage to us, says was being fulfilled. Uh, Abraham was the first of the Jews, if you would. God said, uh, if you trust in me, as he was there... Abraham proved his trust in God. God said, take your son, your only son, this miracle child of yours, raise him up as an offering. Abraham takes this child of his, Isaac, and brings him up to the mountain, raises up the knife and was going to kill his son and say, God, I'll give him back to you. Hebrews tells us that Abraham had faith enough to believe that God could even raise him from the dead. And God says, no, 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 Abraham, there's a ram over there in the thicket. You don't have to kill your son. And he puts a blessing, whoever will bless you. And because you have proven yourself to be faithful, he says, I'm going to make you and your descendants as the sand of the sea. Sure, right? And you go, well, you can't count that. It's innumerable. As the stars are in the heavens. And we watch Abraham. He's going to have many, many descendants. And now I think you're seeing a fulfillment now. Generations later, time goes on. And we're watching now. It says, it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore. God has proven his faithfulness. And and Solomon is kind of there in the gravy days. He's got the good old happy days are here again, if you would. They were eating, they were drinking, and they were rejoicing. It was a happy time in Israel. And we're going to find that Solomon's ruling the kingdom and he doesn't have any enemies. He's not fighting battles. It's not a struggle. His father, David, it was a struggle every given moment. David had a turnaround, never had a moment of peace. There was never this happy time in David's life. And Solomon, his son, Shalom, Solomon, son of peace, the beloved of the Lord, he's going he's to be rolling in the gravy, as they say. And he's going to have the good old days are going to be his. And, and happy times are here and the blessings of Abraham are being fulfilled through him. It says, verse 21 says, Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river of the land of the Philistines, And the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That phrase to brought tribute means that they paid their taxes to him. And so he was collecting huge amounts of tax. He was bringing in and the empire was fulfilling everything that God had promised them. 
And Solomon's provision for one day, this is what it took to feed his household, was 30 cores. A core, for all intents and purposes, is about a 55-gallon barrel drum. And it says, uh, was uh, for one day his house would eat 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. Uh, 10 fat uh, oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. So he probably had some 5,000 people in his household that he fed and took care of and were on his payroll, if you would. And he's got to feed these guys by the tonnage, if you would. It says, verse 24, For he had dominion over everything west of the river from uh, Tibsha uh, even to Gaza. Notice it says he didn't even control Gaza, and that's where the Philistines were. But up to Gaza, uh, over all the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides around about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety. Every man under his vine in his fig tree. And we said that was just a, a, a statement, uh, just like you got a car in every garage and two chickens in every pot was the promise given to us after World War II of a time of prosperity. This is the same figure of speech saying every man had a, a vine and everyone had a little fig tree to provide for him a little shade. It's the, the picture of happy days are here again. And so everything's at peace, everything's at safety. To Beersheba, which was uh, uh, down to the uh, uh, south, if you would, and from Dan even to Beersheba. Dan was the farthest northern tribe, Beersheba was the southern. And he says, all the days of Solomon. And it said, and Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses uh, for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. He built a huge military empire. And those deputies provided for the King Solomon and all who came to King Solomon's table each in his month, and they left nothing lacking. They also brought uh, barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. So in the abundance of happiness, we don't want to rain on anyone's parade here, but if you were had a keen eye, you start to realize there's some seeds of the problems of Solomon's destruction are right here. He's got a whole bunch of horses and he's got a whole bunch of horsemen to build up his military armor. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it tells us that the king of Israel was never to do certain things. He was never to multiply wives. Solomon does it in abundance. He's never to multiply gold or silver, and he multiplies it in abundance. And the king was never to multiply horses. And here he is. He's multiplied horses. And I guess in the happy days of here again, and everybody's marching up and down the street, you can just say, well, you know, the king's rich. Praise the Lord. The king's got a lot of stuff. Praise the Lord. God warned him and said, you got to be careful with these things because when you start to build up the women and the possessions and the gold and all those things, it's got to creep into your life. It's got to wrap its little tentacles around you and drag you down. And you got to be careful with these things. And Solomon, he just had it. He wasn't paying attention. And at this point in time, nobody seems to care. But he's there in his happy days. He's doing everything that we could. And we talked about this last week where he even started to... First thing it says in chapter 3, verse 1, is that he had a marriage alliance with Pharaoh's daughter. 
and right back to Egypt, right back there to tie him in. You're seeing Solomon starting to have the, the seeds of his own destruction right in front of him. I, I hate that. You wonder in our life, you know, gee, happy days are here again. Great things are going on. And I wonder how much baggage I take in my life and say, I wonder if there's the seeds of my own destruction that are buried deep within my own heart, within my own life, and I just am blind to it. I'm, I, I'm missing it. And as time goes further down the road, I, I wonder if there's got to be something that's going to come up and destroy me. And I would have said, gee, I should have seen that back then. The seeds were planted back then. Isn't that a scary thought? I, I don't like to think like that. I don't enjoy those those that that way of thinking, and it, and it should be a time for us to have some introspect to look at ourselves and say, are we making mistakes critical? But that's another sermon, and here we're going to sit down and see that uh, for the most part we're going to try and learn what Solomon's doing right because he does do many things right. So we see Solomon's fame, verse twenty nine, go on. It says, now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breath of mind. There's a difference there between wisdom and discernment. Discernment's being able to tell right from wrong, and wisdom then is being able to know what to do with understanding right from wrong. A lot of us don't always know the difference between right and wrong. We can't discern whether we're doing something that's going to be destructive. And here he has his discernment, and yet he also understands that he knows what to do with them. Even though those seeds are buried inside of him, the wisest man that ever lived. And yet he's blind to things. That's scary. So with even great discernment and, and breath of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore, he's got everything in buckets. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He's the smartest guy in town. For he was wiser than all men. Than than Ethan, the Ezrathite. Whoa. So right there for us, it doesn't mean much, but he's wiser than Ethan. Whoa. He's smarter than him. So uh, then Ethan. Sorry, not Nathan. And then from Heman and uh, from Calcola and from Darda, the uh, the sons of Mahol, uh, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. So there were some wise men at the times from competing nations, and in the smart uh, Olympics, if you would, Solomon whooped them all. He was a he was a smart guy. Says he also spoke three thousand proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. He had a poetic side to him. And he spoke of trees from the cedars that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So here he is. He's smart. God's just blessing this guy with being able to look at something, understand it. And he just sees and understands things. He goes, wow, let's talk about fish and plants and and trees and you name it. Solomon could talk about it and impress you with his knowledge on it. And he just probably was had this computer mind that just could understand the facts and figures and thinking and, you know, wow, he must have been an impressive man to sit and to listen to. And everyone just like to say, just talk to me. I just, I just like to hear you talk. 
And so he has a buddy, it says. Now, now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon. So Hiram is going to be a guy that, uh, and Tyre is going to be the northern kingdom that kind of borders. Sidon Tyre is the northern, up around Lebanon, if you can see Israel. I could draw on my board, but I don't have it anymore. <laughs> anyway, you could just kind of picture Israel in your mind. And then that northern section, if you would, where it's now Lebanon, is going to be Tyre. And they were famous for their trees. The trees of Lebanon were, you know, monstrous trees. And, uh, and so Hiram, it says, uh, King of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon. He's going to come down there and make peace with him. When he had heard that he had uh, uh, anointed him king in place of his father. And it tells us, for Hiram had always been a friend of David. So he goes, you know, I liked your dad. Now you're taking over. I'm going to send you some men because it says... Um, they're going to build the temple now. Verse 2. Then Solomon sent word to Hir- uh, Hiram saying, You know that David, uh, my father, was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord, the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build the house for my name. So Solomon's going to build the temple, the place where God is going to reside. David wanted to build it. David was a man of bloodshed. He had uh, committed his sin and he was a man of war. And God says, I'm not going to use you to build the temple. And he says, I'm going to use you, uh, his son, to Solomon to build it. So he says, now is the time. So he says, uh, verse 6, Now therefore, command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, that my servants will be with your servants, and I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say. For you know, and I love this part, you know, Hiram, that uh, there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidians. And it came about when Hiram uh, heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord God today who has given to David a wise uh, son over his great people. So Hiram uh, sent word to Solomon saying, I have heard the message which you have sent me. I will do what you desire concerning the cedar and cypress timber. My servants will bring them down from Lebanon to the sea and I will make uh, them into rafts to go by sea to the place where you direct me. I will have them broken up there and you shall carry them away. Then you shall accomplish my desire by giving food to my household. That's the only thing I'm asking. Pay, you know, feed my workers for me. So... Uh, Hiram uh, gave Solomon as much as he desired of the cedar and cypress timber. Solomon then gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of beaten oil. Thus Solomon would give Hiram year by year. 
the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a covenant. So it's a good time. Solomon's smart. He's going to start to build this house, the temple that needs to be erected. And we're going to find out that this temple is just going to be awesome. I don't know if there's ever been a building that's been put together like this. And we talked about Solomon having money. We said, King David kind of said, here, here's $19 billion worth of gold, son, to do a construction project with when I die. And Solomon's going to say, it's time for us to start this construction project, and we're going to build this temple. This is going to be the temple where God used to dwell with the children of Israel in a tabernacle. It was a tent of meeting, they would call it. And it was a tent that was set up on the borders of the outside and inside there was the holy place and then inside the holy place there was the holy of holy places and then that's where the ark of the covenant would reside you saw the movie the raiders of the lost ark and you heard all these little things about the ark of the covenant and it was a box if you would it was called the mercy seat and on this mercy seat there was two little uh, uh cherubim which were the highest uh hierarchy of angels if you would that were like the seraphim that were closest to god and there was these two angels that were there and both of the angels would be facing opposite directions and their wings would touch back and this is supposedly where god would sit as his throne this one room one place where it says the shekinah glory of god would reside right on top of this ark and nobody was allowed to go in there except for the high priest. Once a year, he would go in there and he'd have to go through all the rituals and all the sacrifices, wash himself in blood, wash himself with water, sacrifice this, do that. And then once a year, he'd come in there, pour some blood on the mercy seat, if you would, and that would pay for, atone for all the sins of Israel for the year. And it was a very important place. And now is what's happening is in, instead of being when... The nation of Israel was out in the wilderness for 40 years wandering around. God would have this to be like a mobile tent that would go places. And David saying, it's time to put some roots down and to make a, a temple, something solid that's going to be worthy of God. The creator is going to dwell there, or at least we could meet God there once a year and see the glory of God. The high priest once a year gets to walk in there and see this place. So it's, how do you go about a construction project like that, you know? Well, you want to make it kind of nice, I think, you know? <laughs> and so Solomon's going to make it kind of nice. He's got some money and he's got some ideas and his father's put the whole thing together. And so he wants to sit down there and start to doing it things right. And so they're going to start with timber and timber is what's going to be there. And, he, and, and David said, hey, when I die, my son's going to build the temple. So Hiram or Hiram, whatever your name is, you're going to come down here and you're going to, you're going to give some wood. And I like Solomon. He doesn't come up and he's not greedy, impetuous. He's grabby. He's not saying, you give me this or else. He turns around and what does he do? He uses a little bit of tact, a little bit of wisdom. And he says, you know hear him you know you're like the best at doing this nobody can cut trees down as good as you guys the Sidians are the best at doing this and he's he's using his speech he's using his conduct to sit down and to say you know what i respect you uh, i'm impressed with you and the things that you're doing and uh, uh i i need help here 
And I think whenever we want to learn anything from Solomon, if you want to ever get anything out of someone, right? A little bit of kindness goes further than demanding, whining, crying, or or, or, or trying to manipulate something out of somebody. Solomon says, look, I could do this any 20 different ways, but I'm smart enough to use a little eloquence in my speech. I'm, he's not flattering. Flattering is to build up somebody falsely. He's, he's using speech to, to compliment somebody. It, it paves the way to get some of the things that we want to do. I know I'm that way. If you want something out of me, uh, you know, I melt like butter if you go up and say, oh, I listened to your sermons and I got a lot out of it. Uh, If you really want to get me good, say, oh, I read your book and it changed my life. (laughs) Now, now from that point forward, what do you want? Oh, you want a check? You want money? You want this? You want to, you can have whatever you want, you know? And, And I'm susceptible to those little cheap contracts. I don't know why. But all of us are, and, and anyone is. If you go up to somebody and say, you know, you're the best at cutting wood I've ever seen. And, you know, you're just phenomenal. You're gifted and you're talented. And, uh, man, if we had someone like you helping us here on uh, building some walls, wow, we could do a lot. And that goes far. When someone comes up to me and says, well, I need you to do this. You better do this or else. And if you don't do this for me, I'm never going to like you again. I just go, Get out of here. You know, I don't, I don't want anything. I don't, I don't respond well to that. People don't. And, and wisdom sits down and says, you know, treat people the way you'd like to be treated and, and know how to speak and know how to build someone up. The term is to edify. And I'm not telling you to flatter people. Flattery is, is complimenting them with the, dile- with the direct malice to, or, or, or intent to use malice to get something out of somebody. And hopefully we don't ever become that way. We, we want to sit down and say, Lord, I want to use my speech, though, and I want to conduct myself in such a fashion so that I can stimulate other people to grow. A couple of good scriptures for you. I like this. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 16, we'll get there someday. He says, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord uh, Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. There's wicked people that want to flatter you and they know how to impress you and tell you all about your book that you wrote and they're just out to trip you out. And that's wickedness. And that's not what I'm imploring anyone to do. But we want to be able to sit down there though and use our speech as Solomon to just say something nice to somebody. It paves the way. First Thessalonians um, verse 20, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 4 says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, listen to this, he goes, So we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, Paul tells us. He says, As you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. I like that. 
So I swear a stack of Bibles. I never came to you to just uh, trick you or a flattering speech. He says, God examines our heart. He says, nor did we see glory from men, uh, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we may have asserted our authority. I could have came in and said, look, I'm an apostle. Now you do what I tell you to do. He goes, I never did that. I could have. He says, but we prove to be gentle among you as nursing, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I love you guys, man. I wanted to see the best for you. That's, that's, that's the heart of, 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 a, of wisdom and, and, and true leadership. He says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, our working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witness. And so is God, how devoutly devoutly and uprightly and blameless we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his uh, own kingdom and glory. That's Paul. You go, wow. Paul was telling us as Christians on how we are to conduct ourselves. I think Solomon's, you know, giving us an example here of how we should sit down and say, I need something to happen. And I want to encourage. I want to love. I want to give. I want to impart something to you. And my desire as I'm edifying you is to build you up, is to, is to make you solid. Where somebody who's a flatterer, Oh, you're the best, and I just love your book. And blah blah. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get something from you, and I, you notice that sometimes. You watch people, and you say, "What are, are these people just trying to take something from me, or are, is somebody trying to give something?" And hopefully, as you're trying to speak edifying words to a brother, you want to strengthen them, encourage them. Keep walking. I want to be. I want to see it just like a father would care for a, a, a child, just as a mother would care for a nursing babe. I want to speak to you in such a way that you're going to be encouraged to take one step closer to God. Come on, come on, come on, come on. That's the heart of what a believer should be. And I just, I think there's a great example here. Solomon says, "Hey, who could cut?" You know, would like the Sidians. You guys are great. You're phenomenal. Hey, if you want us to pay, we'll pay you and we'll take care of you because we appreciate what you're doing. And it goes so far in this world. I'm amazed that the it's a dog eat dog world out there. Everybody's fighting, competing, putting each other down. And Solomon's smart enough to say, "Let me just exercise a little wisdom." I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to do anything there. And he's smart. He's he's wise. So he he gets some lumber, if you would, from the city.
Oh, I forget where we left off. Uh, Verse 13, he says, Now King Solomon levied forced laborers from all Israel. This is the hired hands, if you would. And uh, enforced laborers numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in relays. So it's kind of a cool job, if you would. Uh, You know, you work for a month and uh, you're going to end up uh, taking two months off. They were in Lebanon a month and two months at home. I I could handle a job like that. Yeah, I work a month and I get two months off. And uh, Adoram was over the forced laborers. Now Solomon had 70,000 transporters and 80,000 hewers of stone in the mountains. So these guys were the ones that would hack out the stones for the temple. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief deputies who were over the project and who ruled over the people who were doing the work. And then the king commanded, and then they quarried great stones, costly stones, to lay the foundations of the house with cut stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the and other people we haven't heard of yet, it's the Gabaldites, something like that, cut them and prepared the timbers and the stones to build the house. So they're going to start a massive construction project of this temple. And now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel uh, came out of the land of Egypt. So that's how they're setting their time clock when they finally broke free from Egypt. That was their breaking time. God said at that time, this is the beginning of new time. You start the clock now. We count our clock. The Julian calendar is from, you know, we're 2004 years from Christ. And so that becomes our point of reference. But for them, their point of reference was for when they came out of Egypt. So you're seeing 480 years afterwards, the temple is finally going to get built. Uh, in, the four, uh, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. As for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, it's Length with 60 cubits, and it's width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. So a cubit is a foot and a half, and so you're going to see basically that uh, you're seeing this uh, 60 cubits. It's a 90-foot long building, and uh, and it sounds kind of, that's the actual temple itself. Don't be deceived. Like, gee, that's kind of small and tiny if you think about it. you think it would be 50 acres wide by 50 acres wide or something, you know, but... Uh, you got to see what he does to this thing first. <laughs> you go, wow. But anyway, let's keep reading. He says, uh, verse 4, he says, Also the house, uh, he made windows with uh, uh, artistic frames. Oh, I, I, I missed a few verses there. Corresponding to the width of the house and its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits. Verse 4, uh, also for the house, he made windows and artistic frames. And against the wall of the house, he built stories encompassing the walls of the house around both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits wide, and the middle was six cubits wide, and the third was seven cubits wide. For uh, outside, he made offsets, uh, offsets in the wall of the house all around in order that the beams should not be inserted in the walls of the house. So he's going to build this structure, and it's going to be a, an architectural uh, fantasy, I guess, for anybody who'd want to build this thing. And listen to this as verse 7. It says, In the house, while it was being built, 
was built of stone prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. So can you imagine that? Solomon's going to say, we're going to lay some stones, we're going to lay some timbers, we're going to lay everything together, but when we build God's house, we don't want to hear the sound of a hammer or a saw or construction. We don't want it to look like a construction zone. Everything's going to get built over there, kind of like in the prefab factory, if you would, and you're going to drag it over here, and everything's going to kind of snap together, and everything's going to fit together perfectly. And Chuck Smith, who was over in Israel, and he goes and gives a million tours, and I've heard him tell the story a thousand times on how these stones were just massive stones, and they were just put together perfectly. And as he says, you can't even get a blade of a knife in between any of the rocks that each one is cut perfectly together, you know, huge tonnage of stones. They're all dragged together, and they all sit together perfectly square and perfectly there and because it was built someplace else. And you go, Wow. That's awesome. They, they wanted to get away from the concept of a construction zone. And so they're telling you, you cut the rock over there. And when it comes over together here, it's going to fit together perfectly. So these were uh, artists and people that cared for their job. They weren't slouches. They weren't just throwing up this thing to have it be done quick. And once you start looking at some of these things, you're going to go, this is a pretty intense building. Verse 8, he says, The doorway of the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the house, and they would go up by the winding stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So the so he built the house and finished it, and he covered the house with beams and planks of cedar. So the stone goes up, and then they start to put wood around the stone. He also built the stories against the whole house, each five cubits high, and they were fastened to the house with timbers of cedar. So he's now building on all around different chambers that start to go around this, this first initial building. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word to you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So he's saying, Solomon, if you walk with me and carry out the commandments, I'm going to inhabit this place. And so Solomon built the house and finished it. Then he built the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the uh, floor of the house to the ceiling. He covered the walls of the inside with wood. And then he overlaid the floor of the house with boards of cedar. So you got stone and now you have the uh, 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 wood that was there of, uh, of the cedars from Lebanon. And then the cedar is what's going to smell beautiful. It absorbs all the humidity and it smells nice and it's going to be a nice thing. So now all the cedars there. And he built 20 cubits of uh, the rear part of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the ceiling. He built them for it on the inside of an inner sanctuary, even as the most holy place. And the house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. And there was cedar on the house within, carved in the shape of gourds. I don't know if I'd want to see gourds everywhere I looked, but God liked gourds, right? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? in the shape of gourds, and the open flowers, which makes sense, 
all the cedar, there was no stone seen. So everything is completely inlaid with wood. You can't see any of the stone as you go through it. It's all wood, 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 wood. And cedar is very nice. It's beautiful. You ever have the drawers of it? You know, they usually put that in the, you know, drawers to absorb the humidity. It always has that beautiful smell. Never mind. But that's what's going to be on the outside. And then he prepared the inner sanctuary with the house in order to place uh, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So there's, now he's going to go into the inner sanctuary of the place and he's going to start to build what we know as the Holy of Holies. And the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. So it's a 30 by 30 by 30 box, if you would, which is where God's supposed to be in his Ark. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary. And he overlaid it with pure gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold. Until all the house was finished... Also, the whole altar, which was the inner sanctuary, was overlaid with gold. Wow, can you imagine walking into a room and the floors, the ceilings, and the walls are solid gold, overlaid with gold? You go. Now, I'm just trying to think of the, the lighting effect of what that would be. Gold, 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 right? Notice there, there's nothing, there's nothing there that, that, that's there for a contrast. Whenever you want to do something, we're trying to design the sanctuary. You've got a little bit of the burgundy matches the chairs, but it contrasts with the white of the wall. And I've got all these people that are trying to tell me how to color scheme the, the, the church, you know. We're debating on what color to make the stage, and we're going to put a brown carpet up there. And, and Sue Wilson's one of the girls there, and she's always saying, oh, you've got, to, you've got to have this color con- contrast with this color to make this. But if you think about that, you go in God's, in this room, there's no contrast of colors whatsoever. Solid gold, solid gold, solid gold. Now think about that. Now it says, I want to get through a few more. We'll finish the verse here, uh, this chapter here. He says, verse 23, Also in the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood. Right. So the cherubim were the big angels that sat over it. Each 10 cubits high. So that's 15 feet high, each angel. So on the ark it's supposed to be these little you know, things coming together. But these guys are going to be monsters, right? And he says, and five cubits was the one wing of one cherubim and five cubits the other wing of the cherubim. And the end of one wing to the end of the other wing was ten cubits. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Uh, Both the cherubim were of the same measure in the same form. The height of the one cherub was ten cubits, so so was the other cherub. And he placed the cherubim, which are these huge angelic figures, right, in the midst of the inner house. And the wings of the cherubim were spread out, right, so that the wings of the one was touching the wing, uh, was touching the, uh, the one wall, and the wing of the other cherubim was touching the other wall. So, however you do the math, you got these huge angels in there, right? And now their, their wing tips are spread out, and each one, one wing t- touches the, the one wall, and then the other one's over here, and that wing tip's touching this one, and this one's like this. So you go, so there's two big angels sitting in there, right? And what is he going to do? He's going to finish them. And what, what do you think he's going to put on them? Gold, right? Uh, so, verse 28, he also overlaid the cherubim with gold. 
Then he carved all the walls of the house around about with carved engravings of cherubim, palm trees, palm trees are there, carved in the walls, and open flowers, inner and outer sanctuary. So I think it's okay if we were to put things on our walls. We could have some palm trees. We could put some gourds and some open flowers. Those are acceptable. We want it to be right. I can't picture why anyone have a picture of a gourd up there, but you know, a gourd. <laughs> I know you think of veggie tails, right? You know, doo, doo, doo. maybe we put some veggie tails in the nursery. I don't know. Never mind. <laughs> I've got little kids, if you don't know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, here he is. They're all laid with gold, and then all the doors are overlaid with gold, right? And uh, verse thirty, and overlaid the floor in the house with gold inner and outer sanctuary. So the floor is gold-plated, right? Uh, For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood, the uh, lentil, and uh, the uh, five-sided doorposts. He also made two doors of olive wood, and he carved on them uh, carvings of cherubim, uh, palm trees, open flowers, and overlaid them with gold. And he spread the gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So he also made for the entrance of the nave four-sided doorposts of olive wood. And the two uh, doors of cypress wood, the two leaves of the one door turned on pivots, and the two leaves of the other door turned on pivots. So he had opening and closing doors that were his pivoting. That was pretty cool technology back then. And he carved on it cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the engraven work. And he built the inner court and the three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. And in the fourth year of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bol, uh, which is the eighth month, the the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to its plans. So it was seven years in building it. So... He had a massive construction project. And you go, wow, what a, what a, what a building. Gold, 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 gold. Can you imagine looking at this thing? Can you imagine being the, uh, the priest that walks in there once a year into the holy of holy places and finishing off everything with gold? You have gold walls, gold ceiling, gold doors, gold everything around you. And then you have, right, It would be kind of really weird looking to see these cherubim there with their wings touching the, you know, the walls and stuff, two luminous figures that are huge, all gold covered with no contrast in the room. So what does that do? That must have been like, oh, you see all this light, you open up the door, you go, oh, you know, and you, you, you just go, you can't, there's no contrast other than some shadows and stuff and everything in the whole room is solid gold. What a trip that must have been to just look at that site and to say everything is just smooth, shiny gold. There's no, there's no distinction between the wall, the ceiling, the wall, you know, the, the cherubim or anything else in there, the Ark of the Covenant. Everything is just huge, solid gold. I think that must have been a, a total rush just to, to walk into that room and sit there. And that must have been so impressive. And never mind, there was no lights in the room. The light was supposed to be the Shekinah glory, the glowing amber of God dwelling on the ark. And so you'd walk into this room and you'd go, a blinding light, you know, it'd be like around all the mirrors of the solid gold that's just going to go, ah, you know, it blind you and humble you. And it had that effect. And we talked about that when we ever see the presence of the Lord. I don't know if any of us, you know, says no eye has ever seen God in his fullness of his glory. 
And I don't think any of us is, is going to comprehend the magnitude of what God is going to be like when we die and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to see God in all of his glory glowing there with that Shekinah glory. The glory of God is going to be awesome. And I think this room was designed to be such an impression upon the high priest as he walked in there. And what is he? He says, I'm dirty, I'm filthy, I'm, I, I, I need to wash 15 different ways for like a week in order to get myself ready to be into this room. And everything in this room and God is sitting there on his throne in some, you know, I don't know, a glowing light that's just beaming. You know, I don't know if it was what form he took or what it was. But it must have just totally, you know, any priest just gone, I'm such a sinful, wicked man. Nobody can stand in the presence of that. I don't think any of us are going to just run up to God and slap him on the back on Judgment Day and say, hey, buddy, old pal, how's it going? You've got to see God in his glory. And this room is designed for God to inhabit. And God is saying, I will dwell there and I will walk with my people. And I want that priest to know. One guy should know, the head of it all, should know the power and the magnitude, the majesty of God. And all of us, we, we become dim-witted, I think. How's that for a play on words? When we fail to recognize the power of God in our lives. I think that's the hardest part sometimes when you see people that are unsaved. They don't appreciate God at all. They have no value for God. Ah, whatever. It's a bunch of garbage. God, who cares? And as you begin to ask Christ to come into your life, you're filled with the Spirit of God and you start to recognize the majesty of God and you start to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And as we mature and as we grow closer to the Lord, we sometimes have an appreciation for for the power and the magnitude and the majesty of God. And I suppose if you and I could comprehend the glory of God, it would make everything else be in perfect perspective in our life. If we could say, God is huge, it's big, and I looked in this room and I saw God, wow! We would, how would we then live? We, we would be forced to live as like, Lord, I'll do whatever I can for you. This is, this is awesome. This is where I want to dwell for eternity. This is where I want to be. I don't ever want to be taken away from this, and I only want to serve you. And then you look at the things of the world and say, well, do I really want to have God or, or a new Porsche, you know? And the new Porsche, it sounds beautiful, looks nice. I mean, have you ever driven a Porsche? You just get in that thing and she boogies down. My brother's got a, had a brand new 944, it was in 1984, had this Porsche. And you just get in this thing and you go, oh boy, this thing is so nice. It just hugs the road and it zips around and you just feel like it's, but that's a nice feeling. But what's that compared to, you know, the God, you know, just power and the majesty. And you're going, "Mm, the Porsche is trash. You know, and you see how you can grab that perspective and you sit down and says, wow, do I want, you know, the pleasures of, of the moment or do I want God? And what happens is we forget the God and all we see is the things that lure us away of the Porsche or the car or the momentary pleasures. And we make decisions because we forget the power of God and we exchange the glory of God, Paul tells us, right? 
That's what we learned in Romans. They exchanged the glory of God for the glory of corruptible man and sinful things. And they made an exchange, and we always make that exchange in our lives. And what we need to always remember is, God, you're so powerful, and you're so majestic, and you're so awesome. And if we seek the things of the the kingdom of God, and we have God fill us with his spirit, it changes our life, and we go, oh, Lord, that's that's the rush I want. I want your spirit moving through my body. I want to know you, Lord. I want to seek your face. I want to worship you, Lord. And, you know, I got to sing, you know, one, two, three, four, five songs sometimes. And then blah, blah, blah. Your mind gets in there. And then there's a time after you sing for a period of time. And then all of a sudden the presence of the Lord comes over you. And you're going, oh, wow. And you go, I don't care if I got to sing for like three hours to get this rush. I don't know what it is, but I love being touched by God. And for a believer who who has sat down and, and experienced the the touch of God in their lives, happens to you just once. It's a you're, you're like the addictive you know behavior comes out of you, and you go, I've "Gotta have it again, I've gotta have it again." I want to seek and pursue the Lord, and that is is worth everything to any of us, and nothing should substitute that in our lives. The presence of God dwelling in our lives is worth everything. I wonder what Paul's, you know, or I'm sorry, Solomon was thinking. Because he goes, I was, you know, asleep. He was up there, you know, just minding his own business. And God revealed himself to him in a dream. God revealed himself to Solomon in a dream. And Solomon's having a conversation with God, right? We, we hear this, right? God makes the whole thing. Ask whatever you want, boy, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon's like, well, I, I just want to know how to come in and come out. But we, we miss the whole passage there where Solomon's talking to God. And I'm sure Solomon was just saying, I, 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 I want to continue that conversation. I woke up from that dream and the Lord touched me. And, and you know, he, he told me he's going to give me wisdom. But you know what I want more than that? I want to continue that conversation. I want a place where God's going to inhabit. I want a place where it's called the tent of meeting. And that's what the temple was supposed to be, a place for man to meet God. And for you and I, we have another point that is a a place that man can meet God. It's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, I'm the Son of God who's come and walked amongst us. And now you can see what God is like. And as we look at Jesus, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my spirit to you. And as the spirit of Christ is dwelling in us, we have an opportunity to meet God and say, Lord, I want to, I want to be, t- I want to, I want to be touched by you, and that's the ultimate rush, the ultimate high, the ultimate thing in our lives. So it says, Lord, I could be beaten, tortured, whipped. I can be dragged through the streets. I don't care, Lord. Something has to make somebody to be able to do that, and it's only a person that's been touched by God that is able to withstand those trials. It's only a person that understands the power of Jesus Christ working in their lives. And when we have to sit down there and says, Lord, that's when I'm, you know, I could be, you know, a drunk, I could be a drug addict, I could be addicted to a lot of things. I don't know if it's just me. I, I'm, I'm kind of the persuasion that every single one of us has an addictive personality. My dad was an alcoholic, and I think maybe I'm supposed to be an alcoholic like my dad. But as I looked at every, I haven't met somebody that doesn't have that addictive personality. We all do to an extent. But in me, anyway, it comes out in buckets when God touches you. And you go, Lord, wow, I needed that. And there's something inside of me that says, i got to have that again. 
I, I got to have that again. What, what is it going to take? I got to pray for a while. I got to read my Bible. I got to, what is it going to take, Lord, for you to come down into my life? I want to walk in holiness. I want to pursue you. I want everything I can to have that power. And I think it just must have been a total rush for Solomon. And I think Solomon was saying, man, I want gold here, gold here, gold here. And I wonder what that priest was looking like when he walked into that room and just went, wow. I mean, does that, what were those, you know, cherubim staring at you that are gold against the gold background with no contrast, with just the glory of the Lord shining out? It must have been an intense scene, just going, oh. God wants you to have that. He wants us to say, this is the ultimate rush. This is the ultimate impression. And we still have it today. We've got the Holy Spirit that wants to work in our lives. And God is here to, for you to sit down and challenge you to say, man, pursue the things of God and don't exchange the glory of God for the things of corruptible man. And already poor Solomon is starting to multiply his horses, multiply his wives. Gets carried away and says, God, I want you, I want you. And the things are starting to reach up and grab hold of him. And it's going to... And Solomon, the wisest man in the world, plays the fool, right? It's my stupid joke, but I like it. Makes a good point, right? I forget how the story goes, but there's the, the smartest man in the world is on an aircraft flying over the, the ocean. He's there with the, the richest man in the world. And he's there with a priest and the Boy Scout. And uh, they're flying over the ocean and the pilot comes running into the back and he says... He says, the plane's going down. The plane's going down. We're not going to make it. And he opens up the side door and jumps out the window and leaves uh, three parachutes sitting there, however the math goes. And the richest guy in the world says, I've got a lot of money. I'm going to take my parachute and I'm going to run out. And he jumps out the door and grabs the parachute and runs. And I have to take care of my riches. And then the wisest man in the world stands up and says, everybody's counting on me for the decisions I'm going to make. Grabs the thing and jumps out the window. Dives over the side and leaves the Boy Scout and the old priest there. The old priest comes up and says, now, son, I'm an old man and you've got a lot of years ahead of you. You're a young Boy Scout. I want you to take the last parachute and save your life. I'll go down with the plane. There's only one left. The Boy Scout turns around and I forget how the joke goes but he goes oh don't worry about it the wisest guy in the world just grabbed my knapsack and jumped out the window I still got another parachute or something and I killed the joke but uh, you get the idea that you go sometimes the wisest men of the world in the moment of their rash they do something stupid and uh, and uh, I think uh, uh Solomon's that perfect guy who thinks he's so smart and going to grab everything and jump out the plane. And he's grabbed the knapsack that was the boy's backpack instead of the parachute and saves one extra parachute for everybody. And I don't, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to sit down and make a quick decision. You want to be patient. You want to say, Lord, I want to listen to the people and what they're telling me. I want to seek your face. I don't want to have the seeds of sin fall into my life. Amen? Amen. Amen.